Acts chapter 16. The title of the message is, Do Thyself No Harm. There's been a lot of gospel messages preached from Acts chapter 16 concerning the conversion or the salvation of the Philippian jailer. But over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this passage in a little bit of a different light. Um, I'll begin by sharing a, a story, an experience that I had this last year. And lately, it seems like the last month or two, I've been having more and more of a, a burden to, more of a, I don't know the, the right word to put it on it, more of an urgency to preach the gospel. Um, not only do I believe that the Lord is going to do great things in this area, but um, with that also comes the sense that um, people are dying and going to hell on a regular basis all around us. And uh, last year I was preaching up in Deer Park, uh, around May or so, and uh, Darren had invited this guy uh, from the community. He's he has a problem. He had a drug problem. He was in his mid thirties, and um, he was known in the town, small little town of Clayton, as he was the guy that would go around and steal things to support his habit. And he would get arrested. He got arrested repeatedly, and um, would just get a slap on the wrist and be back at it. And um, he was not liked very well in that town. Everyone knew who he was. And Darren invited him to come hear me preach, and he heard me preach. And that morning, I preached a a real gospel message uh, concerning the salvation of the the man who was possessed, who was in the tombs, cutting himself, and um, how he couldn't fix his life. He was a slave. He was such a slave to his sin. And as I was preaching that message, I pointed out that this man, he was, he was not liked by the people in the community. And I said, every small community has that guy, right? That homeless guy, that, that guy that nobody likes, especially in small communities, there's always that guy. And this guy that Darren had brought to church, he leans over to him and, and he's relating to this man that I was talking about. And he says, I'm that guy. And so it was Fellowship Sunday, and I went ahead and ate lunch with him and talked to him a lot. And he talked about, man, my mom needs to come to church. And, you know, he knows of some problems that his mom has. And, and I was thinking, and uh, you do too. <laughs> you know, and uh, he said he'd be back. He's like, I really like the message. I'll be back. And, and, uh, um, so Darren invited him again, and he said, yeah, I'll come. But that morning, Darren couldn't pick him up, couldn't find him, didn't come. And Darren got with him later, and he was high, and he didn't come because he was involved in drugs. And That's expected with that lifestyle. And then Darren told me on Christmas Day that that guy just overdosed and died. And I know people die all around us, but that's the kind of sense of urgency that I feel because when you preach the gospel and people hear it, 
and it resonates with them somewhat, and yet they reject it, and then they die, and you knew them. There's a burden with that. And it happens all the time. But every man is responsible for himself to do what he will with Christ. So as I thought about the title of the message this morning, I got it from this passage, Do Thyself No Harm. Our society is full of people who do themselves harm, like I just explained. Yeah. And it's, it's partly because they're miserable. Sometimes it start off, starts off as recreational. But so much of what happens is because people are miserable. Like the man in the tombs that I was talking about, it says that he cut himself. He was miserable. He couldn't, he couldn't um, no man could tame him. And um, in that passage, it says that he was constantly crying. He would be in the tombs crying and cutting himself. So he wasn't doing it because he enjoyed it. He was miserable and he didn't know how to fix the problem in his life. But then he met Jesus. And that was the theme of that message. But in this passage, we have a situation in which a man is about to kill himself. So let's go ahead and uh, stand and let's read um, Acts chapter 16. (coughs) Acts chapter 16 and verse 16. And it came to pass as he went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by her soothsaying. So she was a fortune teller. In our day, we'd call her a palm reader or something like that. And the, and the same followed Pete, Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains, so they weren't going to make money off of her anymore, They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, And seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. You may be seated. So as we consider this message, I want to, by way of introduction, just uh, take a look at the scenario, the scene that took place. The masters of the woman who had the spirit of divination caught Paul and Silas and brought them to the rulers into the marketplace in verse 19. The multitude, then it progresses, the multitude in the marketplace then as a result was incited and rose up against Paul and Silas. The multitude had not been wronged personally um, or offended, but here, here we have mob mentality. And then, because of the mob mentality, the magistrates, the public officers, they were the ones who were in charge, and they determined to have them beaten. And so they stripped the clothes off of Paul and Silas and beat them publicly. And the beating was done by men who were just doing what they were told, officers of the law. As Paul was both a Jew and a Roman, he was not to be beaten in this manner. But the magistrates, in haste to please the multitude, did so. And then we have the jailer, the prison warden. He did not determine the sentence of Paul and Silas. Their sentence was not determined any more than a sheriff or a prison warden determines a sentence today. Instead, according to verse 23 and 24, he was charged to keep them safely or on lockdown. They were to be kept safely. Uh, It would be maximum security, as we might say. They were not to get out under any circumstances. And so, the jailer, thus being instructed, it says in verse 24, he thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And so there was no way that they were going to go anywhere. They were in the inner part of the prison. In our prison system, we call that, they were thrown in the hole. They were thrown in isolation lockdown or whatever and in that day what they would do is they would put your feet and so they had to sit on the floor and they would fasten their feet either to wood or iron stocks and so here they are sitting on the floor with their feet outstretched with their feet literally bound to the floor and so in the inner part of the prison so there's no way they're getting out but what I want you to notice is the word thrust it says that they were thrust into the inner prison When we think thrust here, uh, lest we think that this jailer is an innocent victim of circumstances who is just doing his job, thrust means just what it says, but more specifically to throw down, most likely in a violent manner. And so when it says that, oh, they were brought into the inner prison and this jailer threw them down on the ground and then locked their feet in the stocks, he did not call then for the nurse and say, hey, these guys have open wounds. We see that in the passage. They had open wounds. When these guys were beaten, they were beaten with rods and just laid open. And, uh, and so um, that he didn't care about their wounds or their sores or their bleeding that they were under. He was part of this mob mentality. It was not necessary. He could have easily, when they told him, secure him, secure him fastly. He could have taken him in, let him in kindly. And put him in there and said, okay, now sit down, careful, careful, don't, you know. And, and uh, laid out a sheet on the ground. It was probably a dirt floor. 
and could have laid a sheet out on the ground so if they could lay down at least while they're while they're open backs you know if they're flayed open and it's like a dirt floor i'm not i'm assuming that it wasn't you know up to osha and it wasn't totally clean environment there and so paul and silas would not have been able to lay down or get any rest because their back is flayed open and they're on dirty floors and so forth. And so this man cared nothing for these men. He thrust them into the inner prison and locked them down. And so um, Paul and Silas, they had done nothing to this man. Had they not been beaten enough? But he could not simply do his job and lock them up, but he threw them down and treated them roughly. And I'm sure that he and his prison guards were feeling pretty manly and tough right about that time. And uh, perhaps even when they walked out, they were joking and mocking among, each, uh, among themselves, talking about how, how laid open those guys are. Man, that's got to that's gotta hurt, you know. And, and just, they cared nothing about them. But notice in verse 25, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, and sang praises unto God. And notice this, And the prisoners heard them. So they had been beaten most, during business hours. And so it was during the daytime, they'd been thrown on the ground, like I said, dirt floor most likely, open wounds, with their feet in the stocks. No bed, no sheets, no way to sleep or lie down properly. And here they are at midnight. At midnight, they can't sleep. They're miserable. Paul and Silas are miserable from a physical standpoint. How badly they must have just wanted to lay down. And just be able to take a break. And there's no telling the headache that they had. There's no telling the pain that they were feeling from their open wounds and the open air. I'm guessing they probably didn't put their clothes back on them. It says that they stripped them and beat them. And if they don't care about them this much, they're most likely just in there. And so um, this is where they are. And so here's what I want to point out. At midnight, in the height of their agony... Hours after they've been beaten, in the middle of their hours of darkness, I'm sure there weren't night lights in there, and so they're in the inner part of the prison in absolute darkness, and when they really, all they wanted to do was pass out and get some kind of relief, what did they do? They cried out in prayer and sang praises to God. They sang and prayed, and the prisoners heard. Now, the, the prisoners who were most likely actually guilty of their crimes against humanity, and most of them were probably violent. I don't think they arrested people back then for possession of marijuana or some little tinta, some something. Um, they were criminals, most likely. And uh, oh, these are the people, perhaps some of them were waiting, awaiting a crucifixion or a public execution. And these prisoners heard the singing and the prayers of Paul and Silas. What I want us to notice is in those prayers and in those songs would have been some doctrine. It wasn't like a lot of music today that makes you feel good and makes you feel spiritual, but these songs actually sung about salvation. They would have been singing about their Redeemer. They would have been singing about the hope that they have in Christ. They would have been singing about their past sins and how they're washed away, washed in the blood of the Lamb. They would have been singing songs like Amazing Grace and so forth. And they would have been singing psalms out of the psalms. Right? Maybe prophetic psalms about Christ. But they were praying, and in those prayers, most specifically, that would have been noticeable because now they're talking to God. 
And they're probably praying and in their prayers, they're rejoicing to God how that he has counted them worthy to suffer for his cause. Because we know that that's how they prayed in other passages. And so that got the attention of these other uh, inmates. And so um, I know that there had to be some kind of doctrine. Because when this man is about to fall on his sword and Saul tells him, or Paul tells him, don't do thyself harm, and then he brings him out. We're going to look at this in a moment, but I just bring it up, mention this now. How did he know that he needed to be saved? How would that jailer have known of salvation that comes from Christ? How would he have even known who Christ was? And so we come to the main title of our message now, Do Thyself No Harm. I want to notice first, is first the crisis of the man's soul. Look in verse 26. It says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. I want to first notice the earthquake. It was a special earthquake. There is no mention of the town of Philippi being reduced to rubble or damaged or lives being lost. But it was, it says, suddenly a great earthquake. A great earthquake usually comes with a lot of destruction. It does say a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, so that the bands were loosed and the gates were open. But if you know anything about an earthquake... In a normal earthquake, gravity plays a great role in things, right? When the foundations are shaken and the walls start waving, what happens? The roof comes down and the windows blow out and things like that. But that didn't happen here. It didn't happen. It says there was a great earthquake. The foundations were shaken. The bands were loose. Their stocks were freed. The doors of the prison sprung open. But it was so specifically a great earthquake in such a small location in a miraculous way that there was no collapse of anything, and yet it was a great earthquake. Oh, I believe the ground shook. I believe that the people experienced something mighty, but it was not a normal earthquake. God held things up. There was a special purpose. This is what I want us to notice more than anything. There was a special purpose for this special earthquake. And it was not for the purpose of seeing escaped prisoners running through the streets of Philippi. Now God is in control of everything. If you believe anything about God and his sovereignty, he's in control of the weather. He's in control of earthquakes and everything. When a volcano goes off, God calls this earthquake. And there was a special purpose for the earthquake. God sent this earthquake. And the purpose of this earthquake was simply in the salvation of of the jailer and his family. Because God didn't send the earthquake so that Paul and Silas could get out, although they got out. But there was something far greater than their freedom. Um, God allowed them to be arrested, and he allowed them to be beaten. And God brought the earthquake, and they did get out. But there was something far greater going on than their temporary relief from their pain. 
This earthquake brought about the realization of this man's need of salvation. Without the earthquake, the man would have died and gone to hell 20, 30, 40 years later. But this earthquake brought his life to a screeching halt. The day prior was like any other day for this man. But in a moment, his life was to be over and he knew it by suicide. The way that things worked back then is if the, jailer, if the prisoners escaped, the man, he was responsible. It, it wasn't the nice little work environment that we have today where you get to sue your employers for every little thing and all that. No, if uh, he is the warden of the prison, the, the inmates escape, you die. That's a pretty good motivator to keep, the, keep people on lockdown, okay? And so um, that's, he realized the gates are open. I don't see anybody. The gates are open, and his life was over. And so instead of facing, his, facing the music, he was ready to fall on his sword. Instantly, his life was over. Gone was his bully, manly bravado that he had had moments earlier when he thrust these men into the prison and cared nothing about them. Gone was his status and power. In his mind, I'm going to kill myself. I have no reason. There's nothing to even live for. His status and power in the community is gone. His retirement plan was gone. Gone was seeing his children grow up. In an instant, his life was going to be over. It says in verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. The purpose of this earthquake was not that God could also destroy this man. So that he would kill himself. Because he had abused the men of God. The purpose of this earthquake was that. So God could save this God hater. So God could save this man who persecuted God's people. You see the love of God in this. That God sought out this man. And God went to get his attention. And that's what God does with lost sinners. Man in and of himself does not. Seek after God, right? right? right. Not the God of the Bible. He's religious, but he's not truly seeking after Jesus. And even many people who say, oh, I've always loved Jesus. When they really find out the Jesus of the Bible, they don't really have that much interest in him anymore. Because their understanding of Jesus is that he, he came to live a good life and show us a good example. And God loves everybody. And, um, and, uh, but when you actually begin to understand God, that he's a righteous God and he's a holy God, and oh, that man has to answer for his sin. It's a one, Jesus, Jesus is wonderful in that he died for sinners. But men don't like that Jesus. Right. right? The natural man doesn't like that Jesus. This man had to come to see his need. And this earthquake brought out that need. It was drastic. And so the next thing I want us to notice is the statement, do thyself no harm. It says, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Paul cried with a loud voice. Why? Why? What would be wrong with just letting, just, there'd just be one less abusive jailer in the world. Ten minutes before, the jailer cared nothing for their wounds. He wanted to kill himself. So let him get on with it. We as Christians can sometimes fall into that category. When we see the people in our society, maybe they are like the guy that I just mentioned, or oh, the people in society that we don't really care about, we don't like them, seeing, seeing them on the street corner. And 
You know, sometimes I think that in our callousness, we just assume they go ahead and get on with it. But Paul wasn't that way. And we especially get that way towards people who have offended us personally, right? We have grudges and we have bitterness. And, and uh, they come to a point like this, well, get on with it. Don't let me stop you. And, uh, but Paul wasn't like that. Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, I'll just read this. You have heard it that hath been said. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. <clears throat> we are living in a generation that has the same mentality as this jailer. Things go bad. Things don't seem, they don't see any way out. Well, I guess it's time to check out. How many instances have we had in recent years of people who realize they got their little feelings hurt, they got an emotional boo-boo, and so they go get as many guns as they can, and they go into some place, and they take out as many people as they possibly can, and then they take out themselves. There's no concept of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And that is what's so scary is the natural lost man can reach this point where when he's completely void of God, he just, his first reaction is, I'm just going to check out. I don't want to deal with this. And that's where this man was at. He's just going to check out. The story does not end with Paul stopping yet another suicide. As some negotiator might on a caller hotline or something. There's so much more to it than just stopping another suicide. This man not only lived to see another day physically, but he ends up receiving eternal life. And that's far, far greater than what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What difference does it make if you make it to 120 and you die and go to hell? What is most important is that today you receive eternal life. And so um, it says, then the jailer, notice what the jailer did. It says he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling. And fell down before Paul and Silas. But then notice. He realizes. I think he came in and he, he fell down before them. And I always pictured him coming in and falling down before them. And asking, sirs, what must I do to be saved in the, where they were? But he didn't. Look at what it says. It says, and he came in trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out. And said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He got them out of that horrible situation that they were in. And he at least got them out of the prison cell. And then he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He needed some answers. What must I do to be saved? This is a question that all men at some point in their life should be asking. This is the most important question of our life. What must I do to be saved? It's our most pressing need. I need to be saved. You don't ask what must I do to be saved until you realize I need to be saved. Right? There has to be a need, a realization. And so Jesus said, I didn't come to um, uh, save the... uh, Call the righteous, but to uh, call sinners unto salvation. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And for the person who ends up realizing, I need to be saved. My problem is that I'm lost. I'm without hope of eternity. I'm condemned. 
uh, by my sin and, and so forth, and I need forgiveness. Once a man comes to that realization, I must be saved, he thirsts for the answer. He cannot stop until he has the answer. He cannot abide, he can't stand to stay in his current condemned state. And then saved from what? How did this guy know he needed to be saved? He says, so Paul has told him, don't fall on your sword. We're all here. Well, isn't that, wasn't he saved right there? Oh, I thought I was dead and now I'm saved. There's a lot of people that you can ask them about, so has there ever been a time that you were saved or that you came to know the Lord or, you know, ask it in different ways and they're like, Oh, there's been a lot of times that God saved me. I know God favors me. I was in this car wreck one time, and I should be dead, and, and this and this. And they got all these stories. We were talking to a cowboy down in Oklahoma when I went down there last October for a tent, tent meeting, and, and uh, he was saying, oh, yes, he's like, God, saved, God has saved me many times. He's like, I don't know how many times I've been bucked off and almost been hit by lightning and, and all this, and I'm still here. And it's like, man, that's not what we're talking about, you know. And so how did this man know? He needed to be saved. He he had just been saved from death. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He still had his job and he had his health. He needed to be saved from the penalty of sin and from the state of condemnation that he was in. And somehow he came to realize that he needed to be saved. Somehow through the events of the day, the singing, the praying, somehow he had learned of the saving grace of God that these guys had, Paul and Silas, that he didn't have. How else can a pagan Gentile, raised in a Greek superstitious uh, culture, know that he needs to be saved? Remember where these guys are. They're out in the middle. This is the first time the city of Philip, Paul and Silas had just gotten to Philippi not that long before. These people have never even heard of Jesus Christ. And here's this Gentile raised in all this superstition, and he's coming to Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? These concepts are foreign to the natural man. And so they give him the answer. They say, he says, what must I do to be saved? And they answer and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. It is is key to note that they gave the simple statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But it didn't stop there. Did you notice that? Read this again. It says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. Right? My point is, it doesn't do any good for you to believe on Jesus Christ if it's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Right? And so they said... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but then they told him more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they told him about Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin and had recently died on Calvary for the sins of mankind and and how he was buried and, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And if you will just believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for you, you will be saved. It's not just enough to run around in this world telling people, believe on Jesus. Did you know that Jesus loves you? I had a guy one time come up to me in prison and we were standing in chow line. I didn't even know the guy from Adam and he just turns to me and he's like, Jesus loves you. Now I was already saved at this time. And, uh, He's like, Jesus loves you, but no context. 
just, Jesus loves you. And I said, yeah, and he's angry with the wicked every day. And he was like, <laughs> right. He never heard of such a concept, right? There's, there's two different kinds of Jesus in people's mind. And you must understand the Jesus of the Bible is the same Jesus who's going to be at the great white throne someday and say, depart from me, I never knew you. You refused to believe on me during your life that you had when you had opportunity. And now you can go off into where there will be nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke more about the lake of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth than in any of the epistles. People don't like that Jesus. And so when they talked to him about Jesus, they didn't just say, believe on Jesus. They made sure they spoke unto him the word of the Lord. And they made sure that they knew who this Jesus was. And then I want you to notice um, this statement that they said, and all thy house. To me, this is a special thing that's worthy of note. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And it says in verse 32, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and they spoke that same word of the Lord unto all that were in his house. The gospel message is not just for you. It's for you to believe and you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But I notice that in, the, in Acts it's said more than one time to Cornelius, to Peter when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Go ahead and turn over to um, Acts chapter 2. Oh, I don't have the verse down here, but well, I'll just read this. But um, toward the, there toward the end of Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and they realized that they had persecuted Jesus, the Messiah... And they said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Um, he said, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, he doesn't just say, For the promise is unto you. He says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord or God shall call. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the salvation of God is available to you. And it's also available to your parents. And it's available to your grandparents. And it's available to your grandkids. That's a wonderful thing. An amazing thing happens when God brings salvation to a man. He then desires, my family needs to hear this. My friends at high school need to hear this. Everybody in the world, and I've heard person after person talk about when they were saved and they were truly born again... And they just went out and just, what? I mean, they just told everybody that they needed to be saved, that they needed to know about Jesus Christ and so forth. And, and sometimes the stories are, are kind of funny because it's so innocent in such a simple way. And like Scott was telling me, after he was saved, he just assumed everybody wanted to be saved. I mean, everybody needs this. This is wonderful. Why wouldn't anybody want to be saved? And uh, oh, that's how it is. But what a wonderful joy to realize that it's not just for me. It's for, it's for everybody if they will just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice the change that takes place in this man's life. It says in verse 33 of chapter 16, And he took them the same hour of the night, the same hour that he heard that he must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, And he washed their stripes and was baptized the same hour. 
he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. It's an amazing thing. He, the same hour, washed their stripes. That is evidence of salvation, is a love for God's people. Yes. He, he just got done thrusting them earlier, just a few hours earlier. He thrust them on the ground, locked their feet in the stocks. And they had preached unto him salvation. And when he believed, he was so full of joy and appreciation, he took care of them. He washed their stripes the same hour. And then he was baptized, he and his. It says, straightway. I just want to know, how did they get the water to heat up so quickly? The heating elements back then must have been amazing. There was an urgency of the matter. For Paul and Silas, it says, they baptized them before they ate. It's, and, and remember, they were singing and praising God at midnight. So Silas, or this jailer, was probably saved around 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And they were baptized at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And had their stripes washed and all this. And then they set out meat for them. And they were up and rejoicing in their salvation when the sun came up that day. And there is joy in serving Jesus. Here's a man who was going to kill himself. And it says, and there was great joy in that house. It's an amazing thing. And you will see consistently throughout the Word of God... And if you've been saved, you understand what it is, the joy of salvation. But it's repeated over and over in the Word of God that when people were saved, they rejoiced greatly. And there was great joy in that city. And you think about Ephesus, and you think of some of these Gentile places where they went in, and when people were saved out of their paganism and out of their darkness, it says, and there was great joy. And that's how it was in this house. He did this. He brought them into his house. At the risk of himself being arrested. Remember, these Paul and Silas inmates were supposed to be held secure. They were supposed to be in the inner part of the prison where they couldn't get out. This jailer didn't care. He's like, Paul and Silas were coming into his house. And you don't read, if you continue on, you don't read of them going back into the jail after helping this jailer. They stayed out. The jailer was not going to put them back in prison. And... uh, and so, and then he rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. The lost sinner can only experience the joy of the Lord after he believes in God for salvation. Over and over and over, as I already mentioned in the New Testament, church history, there is great joy in both the heart of the believer and the heart of the church when souls are saved. It's all of God. And just as I conclude with those thoughts, So many times the great joy of salvation comes after hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, years of misery. God working on the heart. God convicting the heart. God causing that person to realize, I'm not saved. I'm going to hell. I'm under condemnation. I hope I don't die tonight. When I, every, time you lay, every time you get in the car, you just hope that you don't crash and die going somewhere. And then when you're saved and you realize you're no longer under the condemnation of sin, all that anxiety is gone, all that worry's gone, and it's transferred into joy. And not only do you have the joy of salvation, 
but you have the joy of serving Jesus. This man was serving God in washing his stripes. Jesus said, as much as you have done this unto the least of my servants, you've done it unto me. This man, by washing the stripes of of Paul and Silas, was literally serving Jesus, who had just saved him from the penalty of sin. And there's so much, there's just layer after layer when it comes to salvation and the hope that we have in Christ. It's not all just about fire insurance and making sure you don't go to hell. That's important. But there's so much more to it. It's about actually, actually having life in the first place. It's about actually having purpose in life. And having purpose in life that um, I get to serve God. And then one of these days I get to go to heaven and be with God. And He gives you a new family when you're saved. By way of invitation, as we close this message, I would encourage you, no longer reject Jesus Christ. Do thyself no harm, as Paul told this man. By rejecting to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you do yourself harm. And I would encourage you today, do thyself no harm. Give up the fight against God. If you're not saved, you're fighting against God, gritting your teeth in misery. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.